This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and you're listening to the DeFacto Leaders Podcast on the B Podcast Network, where I help pediatric therapists and educators become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. With over 15 years of experience supporting school-age kids with diverse learning needs, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians, teachers, and aspiring school leaders feel more confident in the way they serve their students and clients. I'll cover a range of topics designed to help you support students' emotional and academic growth and set kids up for success in adulthood, including how to support language, literacy, executive functioning, as well as how to help IEP teams working together to support kids across the day. Whether you want to learn more effective strategies for your therapy sessions or classroom, be a more influential leader on your team, or find creative ways to use your skills to advance in your career, I've got you covered. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 128 of the DeFacto Leaders Podcast. I am so excited to share this special episode with Dr. Joseph Williams. If kids haven't developed certain academic skills by a certain age, their ability to advance in their education diminishes. And as I've been talking with different curriculum experts and school leaders, many of them have shared that closing academic skill gaps is an important part of addressing equity issues. Kids need to learn the skills that will enable them to advance in their education because it can substantially expand their career options in the future. So obviously this doesn't mean that we're going to ignore their emotional needs, but there is a lot to be gained from really focusing on those core academic skills. And that's why I wanted to dive into this topic a bit further. So I invited Dr. Joseph Williams to episode 28 of the show. 
Dr. Williams is a dedicated and accomplished school leader currently serving as the principal of Franklin High School in Seattle, Washington, with over 25 years of experience in pre-K through 12th grade education, he's made a significant impact in various roles throughout his career. He began his journey as a special ed and social studies teacher, and his passion for helping students with diverse needs led him to pursue leadership positions. And over the course of 13 years, he's served as an assistant principal and a principal, bringing his expertise and dedication to elementary and secondary schools. As an African-American school leader, he's deeply passionate about equity and access in K-12 education, and he understands firsthand the importance of turnaround school leadership and the transformative power of K-12 education to ensure that no student's race, identity, gender, economic status, or zip code limits their potential. Growing up as the second oldest among six siblings, Dr. Williams experienced the challenges of relying on public assistance in Kansas City, Missouri. This background has fueled his unwavering belief that all children, regardless of their socioeconomic background, deserve a quality education and opportunity to build fulfilling lives. His personal journey is a testament to the belief that every child can achieve academic success and lead an extraordinary life. In this interview, he shares how having positive role models in his early years shaped the trajectory of his life and how he's used it in his work in the inner city schools. And we also discuss the importance of closing academic gaps in those early years and why this has such a huge impact on equity and access to education in the later years. He has such an amazing story, and I'm so excited to share it with you. Before we get started, I wanted to talk about a tool that I've created to help people who are working in the school systems and want to support executive functioning. It's called the Time Tracking Journal. So executive functioning support in the schools often consists of things like checklists, timers, and sticker charts, and other types of visuals. But the problem with those is that if students don't know how to do the internal planning that's required in order to figure out what to put on a checklist, or to know when to check a timer, or to know how to evaluate the steps along the way and estimate how long that they'll take, a checklist isn't really that helpful. So it's not that tools like this are bad, it's just that they're incomplete. And if this is the main strategy that you're using to support students' executive functioning, you're probably noticing that they're still struggling. Maybe they're still anxious about difficult tasks and they avoid things that they don't wanna do or struggle to complete their academic work or really anything that doesn't give immediate gratification. Maybe these students are complaining that they're bored and they don't persist through some of those tasks that require multiple steps or that are repetitive. And these also might be the students that lose track of their things and miss assignments and miss deadlines. And many times these students are also the ones that are having other behavioral issues, so different emotional outbursts, having a hard time self-regulating, those kinds of things. Many of these things can be tied back to executive functioning, and that's why if you are using a checklist with a student and you're just filling it out for them and just 
giving it to them, you're not really teaching executive functioning. You're essentially doing the executive functioning for students and not giving them the opportunity to practice those skills. So when we use tools like checklists or other cognitive strategies, we need to make sure that we're actually teaching the skills to engage in that internal planning that they need in order to complete those daily tasks that require multiple steps, whether it's a writing assignment or whether it's packing their bag in the morning. So I give you a tool for working through these multi-step tasks with the Time Tracking Journal. So to check out the Time Tracking Journal, you're gonna wanna go to drkarendudakbrennan.com backslash time journal. Now, please enjoy this interview with Dr. Joseph Williams. Today I am joined by Dr. Joseph Williams III from the My K-12 Career Show. So thank you so much for being here with me today. Super excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, um, I, I know that I had so many different questions I wanted to ask you. You have such an interesting experience. So I thought, why don't we just start off by having you give us a little bit of a background on what your career journey has been up until this point and what you're yeah. doing now. Yeah, so um, I have a pretty unique story. Um, I'm the second oldest of six children. Um, my mom had me when she was 18, so I'm not even her oldest child. So, you know, statistically speaking, as a Black man living in America, I shouldn't be on your show right now as Dr. Williams, an educator for the last 29 plus years. But um, yeah, I, I just feel like, you know, education gives you options. And my mom, even though she made some, you know, choices that she might want to take back, um, just really was like, hey, this is the hand that life dealt me, and I'm going to make sure that my children have an opportunity at a much better life than I had growing up. And and she was very clear to us that if we wanted to not have the kind of life that, you know, she had early in her life, that, you know, K-12 education was the key, and that that would give us options for our life. And it was six of us, and we all believed her. We all believed that, yeah, we can do something with our life, and we can make something out of our life, and it will give us options. And I was really heavily influenced by my youth pastor, who also was an attorney. He had a beautiful wife. He had a beautiful life, and I wanted that life. And so for me, it was like, hey, I'm going to be an attorney one day. So I saw that in him. He was the most positive Black male influence on my life growing up. And so everything I did was geared toward going to law school. And I was a pre-law major. After I graduated from high school, I was a pre-law major. I actually ended up getting accepted in every law school that I applied to. And I really thought I was on my way to law school. But my last year of college, um, I had the opportunity to sub. I was only taking like one class every semester to graduate and had a lot of free time on my hands. And somebody was like, hey, you can make some money subbing. And it's like, I never thought about that. And so just start subbing. And man, it was just like, I was like a fish in water. Like, I'll tell you, no one has ever had to teach me how to manage a classroom, right? Yeah, I had to learn the pedagogy and all that once I got into the profession. But in terms of me, hey, like, you look, you need to sit down and you need to, like, nobody ever had to tell me that in terms of dealing with kids. And so it was just something that was just natural for me, whether I was subbing in an elementary classroom or a high school classroom, it didn't matter. And I always connected and engaged with the students. And so obviously, you know, the principals and the teachers that I was working with were like, hey, you need to get in this profession. We need you. And so 
It's like, no, you know, I already got my path. You know, I know yeah. what I'm doing. I'm I'm on my way to law school. But you know, with each passing day and week and month, I was like, man, this is. I don't know. I need to think about this. And, you know, there's an old saying, if you want to make God smile, tell him your plans because he might have other plans. So <laughs> I guess he had other plans, um, Doc, because I will tell you, um, I, I said I was going to defer law school for a year and I guess I'm still in deferred status. It's been 29 wow. years. So um, got into it and, you know, um, really enjoyed it. My first 11 years, I was a special education teacher and really loved working with students that needed additional support and provided that support to those students. I was also a head coach um, in um, basketball and an assistant coach in football and was able to touch young men's lives through those sports. Um, really enjoyed it. And truthfully, the only reason I ended up getting into administration is I just need to make more money if I'm being yeah. honest. So uh -huh. um, yeah, um, after 11 years of working as a teacher and coach, I, I became an assistant principal for three years. And I've been a, a principal for the last, wow, 14 years, 13, 14 years. I lose count now. Yeah. So yeah, it's been a great career. And um I'm saying it like it's over because it's definitely not over when you have a nine-year-old, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so far it's been a great career. I'll put it like that. Wow. There's, I have so many questions. Um, so how important was it for you to have a positive role model, even if oh. the, the career that, that your role model had, it steered you in a direction and then you got steered in another direction, but I mean, do you think that was part of the path for you and getting you in the direction that you're in right now? That's a great question. Yeah, I, again, like I said, I grew up, I'm, I'm originally from Kansas City, Missouri, and yeah, I just didn't have a lot of positive role models. And he was probably the only positive role model in terms of an education path. Yeah. You know, I had, you know my pastor at my church, he was a truck driver and didn't see myself driving trucks. Uh, mm -hmm. So you know, I, I did have, I don't want to say I didn't have any positive male role models, but he was the role model that just took me totally out of the environment that I was mm -hmm. used to seeing. And it was yeah. like, wow, this is possible. And I, and I was born in the 60s. So this is possible for a black man to do this. And I'm like, okay, I, I feel like I can do this. And so, because he actually, like you said, he, he kind of kind of lit the path for me and said, hey, you know, by my actions, you can do the same thing because I'm no better than you. And he would always tell us that, like, you know, if I can achieve this, you can achieve this. And so I really followed his um, his path um, pretty much to the T because he was also in the military. I, I joined the military. Like, I mean, there were so many, you know, mm -hmm. similarities in my path and his path. So, yeah, I, I think when young people are young, they, you know, we can really imprint on them as adults. And sometimes that's a good imprint, like I'm sharing now. And sometimes yeah. it can be a negative imprint. And so I'm just, I'm fortunate in that, you know, I had a very positive imprint on my life, you know, growing up with my youth pastor. So obviously, as you said before, your your mother had a big influence on the way that you think about things and the way that you pursue opportunities what things did she do to make sure that you that she reinforced that idea yeah she was um she was very very strict <laughs> I don't even know if her methods would work in 2023 but I mean you know she she didn't have any other choice in my opinion mm -hmm. looking back on it hindsight's always 2020 um but her first four children were boys 
And mm-hmm. my mom's five foot two on a good day. Yeah. So we literally all taller than her, bigger than her, stronger than her by the time we were 10, 11, 12 years of age. And so she just had to be tough on us, you know, to having four boys, four black boys, you know, growing up in, you know, basically, you know, the inner city and in Kansas City. And she just had to be tough on us and make sure that we were doing what we need to do um, so that we didn't get caught up in all the things potentially that we could get caught up in. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was um, it, she was just very, very adamant about. America being a ladder to climb. No, America is not perfect, but America is a ladder to climb. And if you, despite whatever your beginnings are, if you're willing to get a good quality education and do something with your life, then you can have a good life. And And I'm so grateful that when I think about all six of us, we all believed her. You know, mm-hmm. it's six of us, four of us are in education. The other two have been successful in, you know, business, working for corporations. My oldest brother that she had at 14, I mean, he ended up owning his own all-state agency wow. until he sold it here recently. So she's she really had a very positive impact on us. And I actually wrote a book about her. It's called Mama Put Us First. And I'm happy to share that. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, because it it really, I think far too often we honor the people that have impacted us the most um, after they're gone. And I wanted to honor her while she was still living. And so, yeah, I wrote a book about her and her impact, not just on me, but all six of us and how well we've done in our careers. Yeah, I can't. So what was your day to day like? I mean, you've got your your mom who's has six kids and mm-hmm. is trying to, you know, instill all of these things into you and make sure that you are spending your time in a way that's positive. You know, we, we've got school and then you've got after school time. I mean, what did your what did your day to day look like when you were growing up? Yeah, a lot of it was truthfully was without her being there. I mean, my mm-hmm. mom ended up having to work two jobs. Most of my upbringing, um, I, I would say maybe unfairly, a lot of the um, responsibility was put on my oldest brother. Mm-hmm. Um, he was four years older than me. So, and I'm the second oldest. So, you know, he was a lot older than my other siblings. And so, yeah, a lot of times, you know, he was the one that was watching us, making sure that we were doing what, ne- what we needed to do. So I, I I would have to give my brother Carl a lot of credit as well. But yeah, we just made it work, you know, and she just, you know, really instilled upon us that things have to be done systemically and, you know, we weren't allowed to go out and play until we did our homework and we had to, you know, make sure that we did it our best. My mom said, I'm not expecting you to get 100 percent, but I'm always expecting you to give 100 mm-hmm. percent. That was one of the things she used to always tell us. And so, yeah, you know, and that's actually stuck with me even until this day. Like, I just believe that and I share this with my own children that you have to give 100 percent, you know, and if 100 percent means you make an A great. But if it means you make a B, that's okay as well. So just do your best. And so she's always instilled that in us. And I think that has stuck with me even to this day. I always say that, you know, as adults, we're just, you know, older versions of our younger selves. And so this is how she raised us. And it still impacts me even to this day. And I'm in my fifties. Yeah. So transitioning over to the work that you have done as a special ed teacher and as a uh, as a school administrator mm-hmm. how did how did your early experiences influence the way that you think about the student population that you're serving and and the way that you lead your staff i guess we could talk about 
your time in the classroom first and some of the things that came up there in the communities that you've worked in and then transition more to the leadership? Yeah. So, I mean, um, in terms of being a teacher and working in special ed specifically, obviously, I was dealing with a lot of students that look like me. And so it really I felt like I feel like it was God's work, to be honest with you, because it was more than just being a teacher. It was a calling and making sure that they had opportunities to succeed, just like I had opportunities to succeed, you know, based upon my mom and, you know, great teachers that I had in my own life. And so I just wanted to make sure that each and every day that I was taking care of myself so I could come into the classroom and pour into my um, students. And and it went beyond the classroom. Like, I, I can tell you that, you know, knowing their struggle and just what my struggle was growing up, you know, it was always important to me to make sure that they were all right um, socially and emotionally before we even really started doing that, the academic piece. Like, you know what I mean? Because yeah. if they come in and they haven't eaten that day or they come in and, you know, maybe there was some trauma that was going on in their family the night before, I just wanted to always check in with them and make sure they were good socially and emotionally before we even started talking about the academic piece. So, you know, there's an old cliche and it's cliche, but it's very true. Kids don't care about how much, you know, they just want to know how much you care. And so for me, it was just making sure that I always, you know, impressed upon my students and even my student athletes um, that, hey, I care about you. I want the best for you. And, you know, and that stuck with me for the 11 and a half years that I taught. But then even when I transitioned into administration, it was the same thing. It was like, hey, you know, now I just don't have this um, micro lens of my classroom. Now I have the macro of the entire school. And how can I ensure that my teachers have that same sort of philosophy, just making sure that they really impress upon their students how much they care. And then it's so much easier for, you know, to you to teach students when they know that you really care and want the best for them. So, yeah. So how did that look in your classroom? Well, what um, I guess my other question would be, what kinds of classrooms and setups did you have when you mm -hmm. were a special ed teacher? And then how would that look when you were with with the checking in and making sure that you were addressing the social emotional needs sure. in addition to the academic when you were in the teacher role? And then I'd be mm -hmm. curious how you've transitioned to leading other people to do that. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you're talking about almost a 12 year career. So yeah. some of that was a resource teacher pushing right. in and helping, you know, and co-teaching with another teacher. So that's going to look different from when I was a self-contained EBD right. teacher and it's mm -hmm. just me and maybe a teacher assistant. Um, so, yeah, I think it just all depended upon, obviously, when I had 100% control of the class, then it was a totally different look, you know, because I could check in with the students. And also, yeah, let me bring that up too. You know, it depended on the level. You know, I worked at the elementary level and the high school level uh, and the middle school level for that matter as a special ed teacher. So it looked different based on those levels as well. Um, but yeah, if I, when I was working self-contained, it was a, a lot easier to have more of a, a routine in terms of checking in with the students and mm -hmm. making sure that um, they had what they needed to be successful for that day. Um, when it was resource, it was a little bit different because I was basically working from a cart, pushing into a classroom yeah, yeah. and, <laughs> you know, truthfully, in a lot of ways, I felt more like a teacher assistant in those mm -hmm. situations. And that's unfortunate because it shouldn't be like that. But, you know, I started teaching in 94. So 
these kind of things evolve. And so it's a lot more collaborative now. Right. You know, yeah. in our in our day and age. But back in the 90s and the early 2000s, it wasn't like that. And so as a special ed teacher, when I was pushing in, it, it I didn't really feel like I had control of the class. So it's a lot harder ask to do it with students and connect with students in that environment because I really was following the lead of the teacher, the content area teacher that I was supporting. Mm -hmm. um, and then they, a lot of times, wanted me to only focus on the students that were on my caseload, which I didn't yeah. like because it, it just singled out kids and it just wasn't good. But, you mm -hmm. know, like I said, how that how I was dealing with that in 98, you know, would totally differ from what a teacher might experience as a special ed teacher now because you know, we have involved, we have evolved in terms of how we, you know, work with students and, and things like that. Um, so as an administrator, obviously, because I had those kind of experiences, it's easy for me to, you know, share and impart the importance of, you know, collaborative work, team teaching, co-teaching, because that model is more prevalent today than, you know, it was back then. You know, we really do. We said it even then, but we really try to walk the talk now about the least restrictive environment for our mm -hmm. students yeah. and making sure that they are definitely, you know, getting or accessing their education with all of their peers. Whereas it was a lot easier and a lot detrimental, a lot more detrimental in my opinion, to just kind of pull them out and yeah. be a part of the, the, you know, full school experience. So I'm glad we've gotten away from that, but, you know, I really impress upon, our teachers, the importance of not singling out kids, even if they're pushing in and they're, you know, helping students in the classroom that, hey, you're helping everybody, right? Yeah, we, you know, and Jamal knows that you're on his caseload, but everybody right. else in the class doesn't need to know, right? So. Yeah, I remember the, uh, the, the special ed teacher that I had the opportunity to work with for, for many years. I think she taught for like, I don't know, 38 years. And wow. she was, um, she just had a very good system with the teachers where it was seamless. You know, it was mm -hmm. very clear that it, because you know how sometimes even the kids are like, oh, you're assi the assistant. They think, uh, yeah, they yeah. think that you're the assistant and yeah. they, they make, like I've had people who are, have had kids make comments like, oh, you should be a, a teacher. And it's like, I am a teacher, but they don't <laughs> see it that way. And, uh, but yes. it was very clear that, they they would have this team approach and the, the kids saw both teachers as the the teacher and they they had this nice little flow that they would do and yeah. um it was very collaborative and the whole idea of the the special ed teacher being in there and it's not just the kids on the caseload even though that that was why she was assigned to that classroom sure. it was we're we're doing this tier 1 tier 2 tier 3 so it does feel more um, or it feels least restrictive. And then you're also intervening at tier one as well. So absolutely. Yeah, it is getting better. Um, I know that it was probably very different in the nineties when you were doing it. So yeah, I would love to, now that you are, and I know that you've seen this from different angles and you probably have a different way of impacting now when that you are mm -hmm. in an administrative role, but when you're thinking about the process of identifying students for special ed the students that end up getting specialized services and the way that that support looks across all of the tiers, um, what you have seen in your work and then what you see as solutions to those kinds of things when we're thinking about over-identification. 
Yeah. Um, and, and in some cases, under identification. I don't yeah. think it's about over. I think, mm -hmm. um, obviously, when you start talking about specific groups of students, like, you know, Black boys, mm -hmm. I think there is an over identification of students, particularly in the behavior space. Yeah. Um, but I also think that from an academic space, you know, there's under identification. And I think I'm a real proponent of early identification of students that need support. I think if if we're providing students with support in middle and high school, we've almost lost the game. I think it's yeah. super important to make sure that if a student does truly need support academically, that we provide it at the elementary level, at that foundational level. You know, you know, from the time they enter school until around fourth grade, the focus is on them learning how to read, write, and comprehend. And if they don't get those solid um, foundational skills that they need, then it makes it increasingly difficult for them to access their education, you know, in the upper elementary, middle and high school level. And so I think what happens is, you know, students, they, you know, their behavior starts getting exacerbated because they, they're not going to look bad in front of their peers and they are going to do everything in their power to get out of the classroom because they can't read or they can't, you know, be successful or they don't understand. So I think um, I'm a real big proponent district-wide of making sure that we really make a concerted effort to provide um, and identify those students that need those supports super early and make sure that we are laser-like focused on making sure that students know how to read, write, and comprehend by that. By the start of their fourth grade year at the, at the earliest and, you know, by the end at the latest of their fourth grade year. So, because um, like I said, the curriculum fundamentally changes. I don't know if people realize that, but you know, they don't make fifth grade, fourth and fifth grade books for students that don't know how to read. There's an expectation that you already know how to do that. And that's why a lot of times when they do get to high school, which is where the majority of my career has been, you know, we have these ninth and 10th graders that are still reading on a third, fourth grade level. Yeah. You quit teaching them how to read and write. So that's something that we definitely need to, um, I don't think we're doing a good job of that even now, unfortunately. And so I think that needs to change. Yeah, it's a really, there's really interesting trends and, you know, it kind of depends what groups you hang out in and things like that, you know, online and things like with, with all these different reform groups or parent groups and there's, then there's homeschool groups and things like that. And this idea that um, it, it's like this push and pull between real life skills and and job skills and soft skills and the social skills and all of that and then the the core academic subjects the reading the writing the math and i think a lot of times people will say things like well it doesn't you know how much homework or how you do on your test scores that's not a real predictor of how successful you're going to be in life it's how well you interact with people and how you form relationships, which, which of course, all of that is really important. But if you don't have those core skills, then you can't advance in your education. And that really does impact your opportunities that you have Absolutely. after Absolutely. high school. So I, it concerns me a little bit because I think we, we can't forget about reading and math and then the, and the other content areas as well. So, sure. um, you know, when I see different programs being promoted and things like that, it's like, um, especially when we're talking about what are kids doing outside of school? What are kids doing over the summer to make sure that we don't have regression? Um, I mean, I, what kinds of things are you seeing there? And what do you see are 
potential solutions to make sure that we are giving kids access because they have the skills to access the curriculum? Yeah, I'm a big proponent of um, several things. First of all, double dosing. I think that's super important because mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, we we look at school as starting in, you know, pre-K or mm-hmm. kindergarten, but those kids have been in the school of life for four or five years before they ever hit our right you know, our um, school. And so, you know, a lot of these kids are coming and they are behind their, you know, um, their grade level peers. And, you know, the achievement gap is already it's already there when they yeah. walk into the door a lot of times. And we talk about closing the achievement gap, you know, and, and yeah. And there's a lot of factors that we don't have any control over by the time they get to us. But I do feel like we can do a much better job of, you know, providing those supports right from jump because our children don't have a lot of time to waste in us figuring out who needs the additional support. So why not just give the additional support to everybody when they come in in kindergarten and first grade? So that way, as you do find out, you already are providing a lot of those supports. So you could just now you can have them more of a laser like focus as they get into second and third grade. And we're not playing catch up by the time they get to second and third grade because, oh, we just identified that they need additional support. Um, also, I'm a big fan of year round schools. And so I know that's very, very controversial, but yep. I just feel like it's important. I mean, there's just too much regression that happens over the course of a summer. And I just think, you know, there's a lot of, you know, di- different examples and models out there where we can do it and continuously give students what they need to be successful year round. And I think even if we just did it at the elementary level, I think it would make a huge difference. Yeah, I am also a proponent of year round school, but know that I would probably have lots of people who would be willing to debate me on that topic because it is hard to, there is the regression over the summer. And I know, I understand the other side of the debate where it's, we we can't only focus on the academic skills. We have to get give kids varied experiences and extracurriculars and other things outside of the school setting. But I mean, to me, it seems like if we did year-round school, it could be more balanced the entire year where we could focus on the academics and then we could focus on other things as well. Um, I wanted to go back to what you said about double dosing though. So you're saying just make sure that we are addressing those core academic skills in those early grades. What are your thoughts about, um, I know that there's a lot of controversy around how we handle kindergarten and first grade, particularly as um, just the debate on when to introduce some of those academic skills and when to mm-hmm. like, you know, because kids are kids are learning through play when they're younger and we should continue that. But what are your thoughts on that and how to how to handle those early years to make sure that kids are where they need to be or as close to where they need to be as possible by the time they hit fourth, fifth grade? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. You know, I I, I kind of compare, and again, most of my career has been in inner, inner city schools, yeah. so I can't, it's hard for me to not look at it through that lens. Right. And yeah. so, you know, I really compare being a an administrator um, and even a teacher to a certain extent in, a, in an inner city school to the emergency room in a hospital, right? Yeah. Like having a surgeon that's dealing with someone who just had a traumatic injury in a hospital is going to deal with a situation that's going to be totally different from a surgeon who's getting ready to 
you know, have surgery on somebody that wants to get liposuction. Mm-hmm. Like it's just a totally different thing, yeah. right? Like one is in a trauma situation and another one is in an elective situation. And I just feel like a lot of our inner city schools and a lot of our inner city communities are in a trauma situation. And so I don't even look, there's not a controversy. <laughs> like right. it's, day, we, we got to get in there and we yeah. got to make it happen. Right. And so to me, um, you know, when you have, and we have, I can't stress this enough. You have a very finite period of time that you can really close that yep. gap. If you don't mm-hmm. do it, it, makes it super difficult once I get, like I said, once they get into upper elementary, middle and high school. So, yeah. Yeah. I wonder, and this is kind of, this is my theory, but I do mm-hmm. think that the community that people have worked in really has an impact on how they feel about that kind of a thing. Um, I I do think that um, if you haven't had, you know, if you've only had one experience with in one school, you know how things work in that community with that school. And if you haven't talked to other people or had experience outside, it's, you know, it's just different. And, And I think with the whole idea of how much we push the, the academic skills early on is, is one of those things where, um, you know, and I, like I said, it's, if you don't have these foundational skills, there's this sequencing that needs to happen. And, and it yeah. is really hard to, to catch kids up when they're, when they're behind later on. I, okay. So this is sort of a random question. That's been mm-hmm. a debate, but what are yeah. your thoughts on cell phone policies in schools? Um, as far as letting kids bring their cell phone into the classroom, um, giving the teachers the the control over what their policy is versus having a school-wide policy and what that policy should be? Um, I'm a high school principal, so, you know, we can't get away from it. And, yeah. You know, um, and that's evolved too. Like, you know, so I've been doing this a long time. I've been a principal mm-hmm. since 2008. So how I looked at it in t- 2008 versus how I look at it yeah. in 2023 is totally different. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we have to find a way to integrate it into what we do because, mm-hmm. you know, as adults, we're being very hypocritical about it. Every No adult yeah. is going to come into a school and be there all day and not have their cell phone. Yeah. So to say, to think that some child who literally grew up with this technology is not going to have a cell phone, we're just fooling ourselves. And again, I'm talking high school. Right. Um, so yeah, I'm a big believer that you, we just have to find a way to um, integrate it into what we do, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, we need to make it work and we just need to understand that these are digital natives. And, you know, if anybody over 30, 35 probably didn't grow up with it, but these kids did. So, there yeah, yeah, I have heard some people Um, I know the district in my town, they at the junior high level don't let kids bring they, they have to stay in their lockers. And then other people feel like, like you said, we can't get away from it. And we have to teach kids to um, be able to control, like self-manage and control. And how do we help them do that if they don't have some access to their phone during their day? So, I mean, I see both sides of the argument, but I always am curious how difficult it is to do one way or the other from the teacher's perspective, especially at different grade levels. This has been wonderful. And you shared so many fantastic things and i know that you have a podcast and yeah. some and you write articles too yeah. 
So yep. where can people go to learn more about your work and how to connect with you and, and just, just learn more about some of the information that you share? Yeah, I'm happy to share all of my contact information. Obviously, I can be reached on LinkedIn. Um, we do all the shows through YouTube. Um, yeah, I'm just, um, that's those are the two main ways to get to me. I mean, I can definitely share my email with you as well. Dr. Joseph Williams III at gmail.com, no spaces. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm happy to connect with anyone. Um, the show that I have um, is called the My K-12 Career Show and we just interview K-12 leaders, K-12 teachers, K-12, anyone that's associated with K-12 education um, from around the USA and the world. So just happy to connect with anyone. If you want to come on my show, hey, reach out to you. Reach yeah. Out to you. Yeah. Well, this was this was amazing. So thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you so much. I appreciate, really appreciate you, Dr. Dudek Brannon. And um, I'm grateful that you came on my show as well. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to check the show notes for all the places that you can go to connect with Dr. Williams. Also, remember to check out the Time Tracking Journal if you want a tool that's going to help you build executive functioning skills that kids need in order to plan, self-regulate, and reach their goals. A lot of people in education are teaching kids strategies and giving them tools, but if your students don't know when, how, and why to use a strategy, they won't be motivated to use it no matter how much you reward them. Part of that internal motivation comes from their executive functioning skills, which I help you build in the Time Tracking Journal. To learn more about how you can get access, you're going to want to go to drkarendudakbrannon.com backslash time journal. Before we wrap up, I wanted to remind you that it helps me so much if you leave me a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And finally, if you are interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a recommendation for a guest, please reach out to me at talk to me at drkarenspeech.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. 
When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.